Hello and welcome to another episode of No Such Thing as a Fish, a weekly podcast coming to you from four undisclosed locations in the UK. My name is Dan Schreiber. I am sitting here with Anna Tashinsky, Andrew Hunter-Murray and James Harkin. And once again, we have gathered around the microphones with our four favorite facts from the last seven days. And in no particular order, here we go. Starting with fact number one, and that is James. Okay, my fact this week is that the world's best Tetris player is a 13-year-old from Texas. The world's second best player is his 15-year-old brother. <laughs> Are they also the only remaining Tetris players left on the planet? <laughs> no! <laughs> what? Anna, no! How dare you? Uh, it the, is hugely popular, Anna. Yeah, the that third is... best is Dan, by the sounds of it. <laughs> <laughs> the only other player. I just think, imagine being in that family, like your two-year younger brother beats you in the world championships, but at least you are, you know, at least you're the second best. So the best player is called Dog Playing Tetris. Um, I don't think that's his real name. Uh, He beat his brother, whose name is Pixel Andy. The surname of these two people is Artiega. And if you go online, you can watch the final. Uh, it's only one hour and 15 minutes with all the interviews as well, which is 13 minutes shorter than Stop on My Mom Will Shoot. So it's a good <laughs> use of your time if you want to. Um, but this is an interesting thing, I think, which is that all the best Tetris players in the world were people of my age who kind of grew up with it. And then very recently, suddenly all these kids have come in and started kicking everyone's ass at Tetris. And the reason is that if you think about how I would play Tetris as a kid, I would be like on my Game Boy or whatever, playing on my own and wouldn't really talk to anyone else about it and would just have to learn it. Whereas these days, they learn it all on YouTube and they're all swapping tips and all that kind of stuff. Mm. And so the standard of Tetris has just gone through the roof in the last few years. It's <laughs> yeah, because yeah. it's mean, kind of... you could just leave it to us. Why are they stealing Tetris from us? They've got a billion new fangled, <laughs> colourful, high pixel games. Just let us have Tetris. No, it was... no, it's new. It's new Tetrises. They're different games. It's not like the same Game Boy. It's That's like what... saying we shouldn't watch football anymore because the great Manchester United team of 1990 <laughs> is no longer together. <laughs> but wait a minute. I mean, it's still blocks coming down from the roof. And in the World Championships, they are playing pretty much classic Tetris. So. The basic formula is yeah. is pretty unchanged. Whether it's, it's the same game. Yeah. The, the, <laughs> the classic Tetris World Championships only dates from 2010, which I think is a massive swiss anyway, because it sounds like it's been going for you know centuries. It started as a documentary, the World Tetris Championships. Mm. There was a few people online um, arguing about who was the greatest ever player, and someone decided, well, let's get all these people together and have them play against each other. In that World Championships, the winner was a guy called um, Jonas Neubauer, who unfortunately died earlier this year. But one interesting thing about it, what I was saying about how you would kind of learn on your own and now you learn on YouTube, uh-huh. there was um, the fourth place person was a woman called Dana Wilcox. There was only two women in this championships and she came fourth. And when she turned up to the championships, that was the first time she learned that you can flip the um, <laughs> clocks in two different directions, either clockwise or anti-clockwise. Oh no way! And she'd become like one of the top ten players in the whole world without even knowing that. How is that possible? Wow. That's amazing. Yeah, That's I'm very trying cool. to remember if I knew that. No, uh, I don't think I. Did. No, I don't think I did. I lost to history. Yeah, um, you know that champion you mentioned, James uh, Jonas Neubauer. Yeah, he won eight of the first ten classic Tetris World Championships and he came second in the other two so he's really very good at Tetris <laughs> and he wrote an article in 2019 about his life in Tetris basically which was lovely and he, he said Tetris has helped me to make quick and plentiful decisions in everyday life have you ever been to a restaurant with a 12 page menu I can scan the choices and make a decision almost immediately without a shred of regret <laughs> Even if they bring me the wrong order, I'll make it work. <laughs> I love that. I just think. Wow. Yeah. How does he relate this exactly? Sorry, what's the logic leap between his Tetris um, <laughs> champion status and the fact he's fast ordering in restaurants? Because it's you see the options. You see the options in front of you. You get presented with a range of choices and you think, bang, I know how to make that work. I see. Th- I thought it was just he was so desperate to get back to his Game Boy that he can't be planning around choosing me. Do you think he only orders things like fish fingers and sausages that come in that kind of blocky shape absolutely absolutely. <laughs> square potato waffle um, yeah 
<laughs> That's too funny. I actually watched an incredible moment in Tetris history. It was Kevin Birrell who became the first ever Western Grandmaster. So there's never been a Western Grandmaster outside of Japan. And he recorded the video that allowed him to become a Grandmaster. And what you need to do in order to get to Grandmaster level is you complete Tetris and you then have to play with invisible blocks over the credits. And Kevin Birrell recorded him doing this. It's a minute 40 seconds, which is 48 seconds shorter than Stop On My Mum Will Shoot the trailer on YouTube. So <laughs> you can, can save some time there. And you watch him going, Tetris, when he says that. And the moment that he wins it and becomes Grandmaster, you are just with him. It's, it's heaven. And he's jumping around the room. Wow. Yeah. Do you think that any Grandmaster... <laughs> I'm going to use inverted commas for that, uh, in Tetris, <laughs> has ever been introduced to a chess grandmaster and really claimed, looked them in the eye and said, that I'm would grandmaster be amazing too. To have a grandmaster club where all the grandmasters of all the different games meet up. The chess That'd people aren't letting the Tetris guys in that club. <laughs> Why? They, they are they are turning those guys away at the door. Are you a grandmaster in Tetris? Yeah. Yeah, no. Your, <laughs> your, your instinctive finger movements are at a level of no other human. Chess people take hours to play the game. It takes <laughs> single move that's a fair point they're winning on speed true yeah we haven't talked about the origins of it how it was uh, officially owned by the soviet union it was this guy alexei pajitnov who worked at the ussr's academy of science in their computer lab and he liked making games and he um he liked geometric games and there was one which involved pentominoes um whereas tetris uses what are they called they're called tetrominoes because it's four and he had made this game he didn't really know how to publish it and it was already being pirated overseas because of how popular it was so he gave the rights to the government for 10 years and then the kgb got involved at one point in terms of the rights selling so they always did didn't they <laughs> they liked to have a finger in most pies back in the day yeah he named it after quite odd stuff so te tetra Tetris, the Tetra and Tetris, that's just the four. Mm. But then the is bit is because his favourite sport was tennis. Mm. It does seem odd for a man who devotes his life to sitting in front of a computer screen designing games, but I suppose you've got to have another hobby. So yeah, Tetra and tennis. Wow. And I quite like the whole Ominos thing. This um, grew out of the Domino, which was the original Omino, which is just a piece with two bits. And then someone decided in sort of, I think, the 60s or 70s to make polyominoes a thing. So that's one of those shapes with various numbers of squares in them. So, yeah, you got dominoes, you got triominoes, you got pentominoes. Did you say there was a, an original omino or is that no, just the... This is a botched no, etymology. No, stem. Uh-huh. I yeah. don't think it is, though, because the dot, the dot in domino doesn't mean two. No, no, it's not. A, it's not a proper. It's, the door was that's, domino was a thing, that's what, and yeah. then a person said, "Oh, door sounds a bit like it could mean too. So let's create this whole class exactly. of things called it's polyominoes." Fraudulent. It's a fraudulent <laughs> etymology. <laughs> is what I'm saying. Domino <laughs> derives from a word. It was originally a, a we think a hood that priests yeah, Dominican uh, wore. monks, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, exactly. And so the domino was the hood worn by the Dominican monks. So you know, it doesn't mean anything. So what Tet should you call it then? I, I I haven't got an alternative. Um, etymology just lined up because I'm not a faker. I wouldn't do that to you guys. Okay. I mean, oh, you seem quite on. angry about it. You had a few hours. Well, I would happily call it a do-domino because it's four sections and that could be two dominoes together. Yeah. Yeah. Just sounds like you've got a stutter. <laughs> um, do you know why Tetris is so addictive? This is due to something called the Zyganic effect. Uh, and what it is, is that your brain is hardwired to whenever there's an incomplete task, you really, really want to fix it. Mm. And so when the Tetris things come down, every time you do complete a task and you get rid of one or four of the lines, then there, it always kind of gives you more things to do because there are more holes that you need to fill and stuff like that. Uh, and this was invented by a, a woman called Bluma Zyganik, who was Lithuanian. And she worked this out quite early in her career. And then she went on to get a job working for the Soviet Union. Uh, but she carried on as a part-time research scientist, which I quite like because she was all about kind of incomplete tasks and she decided to carry on working part-time on it. Uh, and then she won the Lewin Memorial Award. Uh, but unfortunately, the Soviet Union wouldn't let her collect it and she died before she could collect it. So again, that's another incomplete task in her life. So she, she died happy, probably. Yeah. She died doing what she loved, not completing a task. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then there's the Tetris effect. 
Yeah. Which we will have all suffered from, I imagine. <laughs> yes. The Tetris effects. Coined, I think this is coined by a Wired writer in the 90s, but basically where you start seeing Tetris blocks wherever you look. You start, you know, when everyone played Tetris in the 90s, you close your eyes and you just see Tetris blocks falling in front of the dreams. (laughs) And you can expand the Tetris effects to lots of other things. So it basically means that you're doing something so much to such a stupid extent that everything in it is overlaid on the reality around you. So sea legs is another example of the Tetris effects. So you get off a boat. Oh, yeah. So you're not at sea anymore, and yet you still feel like you're at sea. Yeah, right. Your body's too used to it. Very Mm. nice. Did you guys hear about the other study that was done on Tetris, about how it can help with traumatic memories? This is amazing. Mm. It's if you've suffered some kind of trauma. Okay, so in this incident, it was people who'd been in um, a traumatic car accident. If you play Tetris for 20 minutes within six hours of the car crash you will get 62% fewer intrusive memories in the following week. Wow. It seems to prevent negative memories and flashbacks from even Because forming. you think of Tetris instead, or no? I, I don't know. It's kind of the... It's w- within those first hours is when the, the memories get consolidated for long-term storage, basically. Mm. So if you just disrupt during that time, Tetris seems to be especially good at it, although I'm sure there are other things which could do it as well. It kind of prevents the memories from forming in the first place, and then you don't get flashbacks later down the line. What if the terrible memory that you have is of being a 15-year-old and your younger brother beats you in the World Tetris final? (laughs) (laughs) You should play Super Mario. (laughs) Just uh, briefly back to Alexei, the inventor of Tetris. Mm. I love that the very first version of it he built on a computer that had no graphics capabilities so he had to make a text version of the game so the blocks were basically brackets <laughs> put next to each other that was the first version and then alexi didn't just invent tetris he sort of quite quickly invented newer versions of the game so did anyone of you guys play hatress <laughs> hats come down with different like a top hat and a yeah. It's literally that. It's literally that. It's it's Tetris with hats. Oh. And hats come down and you have to line them up. So he invented Hatris and then I thought it was just playing Tetris three times. It sounds a bit like it's called a Hatris. <laughs> yeah. That would over. be a fake etymology, Adam. <laughs> <laughs> so sorry. Yeah, so five hats of identical style had to be stacked, and that's how you would remove them. Okay. And um Entertainment Weekly at the time said there is after all a cure for Tetris addiction. It's Hatris, a habit that's even harder to kick. (laughs) There's Wordtris as well, which was another Alexi game. So Wordtris, I actually think would be really fun. The idea is that you had to create blocks of three letters. So letters would drop and you'd have to create a word. So you could make it. It's basically like a big crossword Mm. and you just have to decide where to land a letter, hoping, yeah, that the the next one that came. Yeah, pretty cool game. Yeah. Mm. Um, do you know, I think that James would have point blank refused to play Tetris when it first came to the West. Uh-huh. So it was, Andy sort of referenced it earlier, but it was a big deal that it was a Soviet export. And it was really, and no one had ever really exported something for financial gain from the Soviet Union before because it was so difficult to do because that just wasn't what they were about, obviously. So came out and the West was kind of very excited. And it seems like the Soviet Union aspect was a bit of a gimmick. So they included the right visuals on the Tetris packaging for the West. Mm. And so, of course, when you got the Tetris box, backwards was it a backwards R? Oh my! I'm afraid it was backwards R. Oh my! I'm afraid it was spelled with a backwards R. Brilliant! Absolutely furious. (laughs) (laughs) It's really. I think it's like the Tetris effect that when you learn in Russian and you just see these backwards letters everywhere, you can only read them because you're used to doing it. You can only read them in the correct way, and it just none of the words make any sense. Maybe we're supposed to be pronouncing Tetris that way. So how should we be pronouncing it, James? It would be like Tetris. Okay. But then also there's no I in, in the Russian language no or that looks like an I. So. I'm now picturing how pissed off James must have been going to buy this backward R Tetris as he's walking into Toys R Us to get it. <laughs> <laughs> um, hey, can I give you one last fact, which is yeah. that the, the, the link between Tetris and cats. Was there a Catris then? There wasn't a Catris. Uh. I mean Cats the Musical specifically. Oh. Ah. Which is that... The Tetris theme reached number six in the UK charts in 1992, and Andrew Lloyd Webber was the man behind it. I bought it, I remember. Did you really? Yeah, yeah. 
He had a pseudonym. He said he had the pseudonym Dr. Spin. So you, James, walking to the shops would have just thought, oh, I'm going to get the cool new track by Dr. Spin. It was actually Andrew Lloyd Webber. I think we knew at the time that it was Lloyd Webber. I think. I can't really remember it very well. But there was like, at the time, a lot of video games kind of came out as as dance tracks. Okay. Oh, cool. Andrew Lloyd Webber composed the tune? No, he remixed it, didn't he? Because it's an old, it's a very old, well, it's in Tetris. So it it sort of existed for... It's a Russian folk song. Yeah. 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 Is it? It's by yeah. Nikolai Nekrasov and it's the story of a young peddler who seduces a peasant girl um in a field of rye. And he keeps <laughs> saying that he'll offer her like some of his goods in re- in return for a kiss um slash right. a shag. Uh and then <laughs> she accepts a ring from him and he goes to the uh, to sell his wares and he says when I get all my money then we'll we'll kind of get married and stuff. Uh, and that's where the song ends. Um, but the original poem, he actually um, gets robbed and killed by a forest ranger when he asks oh. for directions on his way to the market. But that's not nice. in the song. Game over. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it is time for fact number two, and that is Anna. My fact this week is that the Indian state of Madhya Pradesh has ruled that all government offices must be cleaned with cow urine. Wow. (laughs) On pain of death. No, it's not death, but it is a new ruling. So Madhya Pradesh is the second biggest uh, Indian state in size, and it's got 72 million people living in it. And they're... Government has released an order saying that usually they'll use chemically made fennel, uh, P H E N Y L, sort of. Chemical oh right, not the. Oh yeah, not the aniseed tasting vegetable. S- sorry, Lovely. they're not just rubbing licorice flavour all over the offices. <laughs> although that would be awesome. Um, and they have to use cow urine instead, or use sort of an acid extracted from cow urine. And the decision was made in a cow cabinet that was held in last year. <laughs> wow. wow. Uh, this, um, I think it's kind of quite a similar fennel or phenol that they make from the cow urine, isn't it? It's kind mm. of a very similar thing. Yeah. And yeah. Is, it the in- is it the insides of the offices or is it like the walls on the outside or, or what? Do you know? Oh, I think it's the insides. I yeah. thought it was sort of like floors and surfaces. Okay. Um, yeah, but... so in place of detergent, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's what you scrub with. And the idea is they want to create demand for cow urine in order that the state sets up loads of cow urine bottling factories and, you know, cow urine extraction factories. So they think that if they make this ruling, they'll have to set up factories that manufacture cow urine for them. Okay. And the idea is that at the moment, people keep cows, um, especially for milking, but then the male cows are often kind of abandoned often and so by creating this demand it means that if you have a male cow then you might not abandon it because you can milk it for its urine ah it serves a purpose i would have thought looking into the amount that cow urine is used in india for various different things you wouldn't have a need for sort of creating more demand yeah well there's a thing there which is that there are literally millions and millions and millions of cows on the loose in india which are too Ah. sacred to be killed to the Hindu religion. And so it is a supply and demand situation, but unfortunately the supply is so massive compared with the number of people willing (laughs) to use cow urine for whatever. So what else do they use it for, Dan? So, uh, you know, some people drink it there. It's it's seen as a a health drink. Um, I read particularly about one of Bollywood's biggest actors, Akshay Kumar, who drinks it every single day because it's part of his fitness regime. So that's one of the things. It's used for religious services as well. So if a new baby is born and you want to sort of bless your house for good luck, you might, you know, put some cow urine around the house in order to do that. In fact, they sell it in London. You can buy cow urine in London specifically for that, that I believe is imported uh, sometimes from India, but also they manufacture it in Watford. And it's called Galmutra. And um, there was a BBC report where they found it being sold in certain shops sort of on the shelf above the naan bread. And there was questions about whether or not you should be doing that because it's, it's yeah, yeah. We should say this doesn't it doesn't work. It's not good for your no, health. No, it doesn't it doesn't help anything. It doesn't have health properties. You should. We know that. Do we know that for sure? No, we don't know. But I imagine it works no better than placebo, and in lots of cases, quite a lot worse than placebo. It can contain um, harmful bacteria and um, uh-huh. cause diseases such as leptospirosis, whatever that is. Oh, right. But are they in India where technology, science is such a big thing? Is there a big split between the people who believe that this is useful and the people? Is it is it kind of like homeopathy over there? It's not seen as part of well, science. 
It is, but obviously it's incredibly widespread. So it's part of the Ayurveda medicine, isn't it? Which 80% of people in India would subscribe to that to some extent, I think. But there definitely is a divide. So for instance, here with this ruling, there is a rival body that's been set up, which has launched a competition to challenge people to apply the scientific method to all these claims that the government's releasing about the good that cow urine can do and basically prove that it can't do any good. Because mm. it's all it's a big push by the government. It's huge at the moment. So there are cow ministries popping up all over the country and cow ministers in states. And it's kind of related a little bit to obviously a bit of Hindu nationalism at the top of government and it promotes that side of things. Yeah. So right. yeah, th there is a divide, but yeah. it's really widespread. Okay. Hey, yeah. by the way, if you spill your cup of cow urine while you're drinking it in the office, do you just sort of leave it? Because it's it's what cleans up the office now. Anyway, well, okay, if you are in the office and you have a glass of water and you spill it, do you just leave that? Um, well, you've asked the wrong person here. Because, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but would a normal person clean it up? Yes, I imagine they would. Well, yeah, I think you can analogize from that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah it good, is really, good analogy. It is really bad. India, lots of scientists in India have basically been under governmental pressure to make research proposals on the subject of gomutra, which is cow urine, or the related substance, uh, panchagavya, which is a mix of milk, yogurt, butter, lovely so far, then cow urine and cow dung on top of that. And basically, they're, they're saying they won't get research funding unless they research this stuff. So, yeah, yeah. Mm. it's yeah. a problem. Panchagavya was... means uh, five cow derivatives. Um, just a bit of oh, that's clever. So it's just nice. every bit of the cow, apart from the meat, of course, um, that goes into it. <laughs> Arguably, I would say the nicest bit, although <laughs> that wouldn't get me very far in India because eating cows is so verboten in almost all the country. Uh, cow politics in India uh, dates back to the 60s. And this was when Indira Gandhi was um, in charge. Uh, Indira Gandhi, who was the daughter of the famous politician... I I'd say... Nehru. Oh, Anna. Uh, I've completely ruined it. I'm so sorry. I was so excited that I remembered oh, that from my Asia and Africa course wow. at university I, in second year. My foot year. was hovering over the landmine and Anna just stepped in <laughs> and put a safe mat in. I can't I believe can't I did believe. that. I apologise to the listeners. I, I apologise to my parents. I've been looking forward to that all week. <laughs> I knew he was going to fall for it. Yeah, uh, Nehru. Nehru's daughter. Well, <laughs> look, yeah. we'll, we'll cut that. Do it again. Right, go. I'll say quiet. So um, in 1966, there was a storm of the Indian parliament. Um, they were trying to pressurize uh, Gandhi to criminalize cow slaughter. And she refused to kind of kowtow to what they wanted. Uh, and she had like... Huh, very, very oh, funny. yeah, I didn't yeah. think of that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, there you go. That's one thing that I hadn't been looking forward to all week. <laughs> <laughs> I know you think that I was, and you think that I've been leading up to that. And that's the whole point of this fight, but no. Um, so then Gandhi negotiated with these protesters. Uh, and actually, people really started respecting her a lot more after that. And her party congress, they chose the cow and calf symbol uh, as a result of this. And then cow politics kind of became quite a big thing in India. Um, but what I like about Indira Gandhi is she started at quite a young age. Uh, when she was 12 years old, uh, she led a bunch of children in a group called the Monkey Brigade, which included 60,000 young um, revolutionaries. And they would like send letters to people, they would make flags, they would put up notices before the demonstration, stuff like this. And even before that, when she was five years old, she burned her own doll because she found out it was made in England. Wow. wow. So, yeah. Okay. The Monkey Brigade sounds like a deceptively innocuous name for a bunch of revolutionaries. It sounds like you're getting <laughs> your little monkeys as they're burning your house down. Yes, <laughs> correct. It's the um the Lord Rama in the epic Ramayana had an army of monkeys and so they were named after that. And oh. so what's the connection of why she has the name Gandhi? Is that through a marriage or is that yeah, something she she I think, if memory serves, she um was educated in England, maybe, but she met someone who was not related to Mahatma Gandhi uh, at university, I think. Right. He happened to be called Gandhi. Yeah. Wow. It's a good name. It's a good name to sort of take to the world of politics. Mm. Like, if I was a politician and I had the chance of changing my surname, I would so look for someone with the surname Obama. I just would. <laughs> I just. What's your name? Kathy Obama? Absolutely, we're marrying. <laughs> Okay, here is another use of um, cow excrement. It can be used as a mobile phone case. Um, 
There's okay. one quite hard line uh, Indian politician called Shankar Lal who says that he has coated his mobile phone with cow dung and he said, if cow dung can treat cancer, why can't it save us from a phone's microwaves? Okay, there is a clear. flaw in that logic, isn't absolutely. there? <laughs> it's an if, and it's a big if, cow dung can treat cancer because it can't. It absolutely can't do that. And this is a man who's speaking with poo down half of the side of his face. So you wouldn't take him seriously, would you? Okay, it is time for fact number three, and that is Andy. My fact is that in 2020, a woman in the UK received medical treatment in two different hospitals at the same time. What? How is that? What? It's great. Hey, what? So exciting. So this was a story that was in the news. Uh, It was about a lady called Jan Ritson. And um, she had a tumour, cancerous tumour in her leg. Now, she needed to have the operation uh, where, you know, the shin bone was removed and then treated for the radiation. Um, But unfortunately, due to COVID, um, all sorts of cancer operations have been moved to a specific hospital which has been kept clear of COVID patients so procedures have kind of been separated out so the the surgeons who were planning the operation realised that they had to take out her shin bone take it to a different hospital irradiate it to completely kill any cancerous cells while she was still under anaesthetic then bring it back uh, and reinstall it in her leg oh my god unbelievable I know I phoned the surgeon who did the operation to ask him oh, about it. Cool. Who was yeah, he's, a, he's an orthopedic oncologist called Ashish Mahendra. And um, we had a whale of a time talking about it because it's just such an interesting wow. kind of miraculous procedure. Um, so was he the surgeon who dealt with it at the hospital where she was or where the shin was? Or was he just like the well, taxi driver? Or... <laughs> okay. No, no, no. Okay, so he, he was where the majority of uh, Ms. Ritson was. He was with her, the, okay. most of her. He wasn't with the shin bone. I read in one article, I don't know if Dr. Mahendra said this to you, but that she could watch the footage of her shin bone being um, dealt with uh, from her hospital bed so they filmed it and she could watch it but you said that she was anaesthetized so i don't wow. know if that's possible well why would you want to watch that oh why not oh, yeah well, i mean, I mean what incredible. else is on snooker at the moment i don't know <laughs> netflix you got netflix watch watch stopping your mum will she i don't know come like, on uh, you'll watch an hour and 15 minutes of nerds playing tetris and yet you won't watch your own shin bone being operated on well is it a whole channel can i flick over to someone's you know nose being operated on in a separate hospital like is it just one Mm. so i did say i I, when i spoke to mr mahendra he did say that she was under i'm pretty sure that he said that so i don't know whether she was possible uh, i think maybe she might have watched it afterwards maybe she might have watched that that entirely possible or something (laughs) yeah Mm. but it's it's such a tricky operation to do this because when when you remove most of these tumors happen kind of higher up maybe the knee or the hip that's more common um and reconstruction is much easier because you need to give some you can give someone a hip replacement can't you or you can put some metal in which kind of does the job when it's a shin bone it's much harder to reconstruct after the operation you know there's not much muscle cover Mm. the bone is really near the surface and just there are many fewer options for reconstruction afterwards so the bone the shin bone they had removed was the best thing to go back in and that's why they needed to do that. They irradiated the bone, killed off all the cells. But unfortunately, then you've killed off all the cells. You know, there's no live matter left in that bone, and there normally is in our bones. So they had to use her fibula, which is the next door bone, uh, and kind of use that as a spare to put that right against the now dead shin bone that was being in- reinstalled. And that then helped to bring that bone back to life. So amazing yeah. what we can And then do. did she have to have like an arm bone taken out to replace the fibula? And then no, there was no, bone to replace the arm bone? Not, How's this it's work? not like rearranging a spice rack where you think, oh, well, if I just put that there. <laughs> um, <laughs> the only other thing I asked about was the container they used because it's put in a special sterile container to mm. be driven across the city. Um, and he said there's no specific optimum size of the container. It depends on the tumour, it depends on the bone. So frequently they will have to tailor-make a suitable container for the bone that wow. uh, is being moved around. Was, yeah. I spoke to my um, sister-in-law, Beth, who used to be a nurse, um, and she said that she thought, 
probably the reason they don't do it much um, is because of contamination, right? You don't really want to be mm. taking stuff across to the other side of the city in case you get some, you know, a bit of <laughs> dust on it or a bit of grease or something. Um, but yeah. then she did tell me that what they used to do to stop that sometimes with, you know, when you had to remove some skull, uh, some of your skull to release some pressure, mm. they would take that bone and then they would put it inside your belly almost, like inside your body, because that's where the perfect sterile place is for um, human bone. Isn't that amazing? Oh, like they would cut you open, cut a little flap. They would put it in there while they're letting all the pressure release, and then they'd put it back. Wow. That's incredible. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> That's amazing. I was talking also to a, uh, a surgeon. Um, so my buddy Harry, Harith Akram, is a brain surgeon in London. And he was saying that when he was in India, the hospital that he was staying at, you would be fitted with this frame around your head. Imagine like in all those sort of uh, mad scientist movies where they put this mm. giant frame on your head so it's it's metallic and it's big and it really sits on and clamps on um, so they would put that on there but at the surgery in India they didn't have an MRI scanner so they used to send their patients on the bus over to another hospital wearing the frame on their head <laughs> they would go have the scans done and be prepped and then get the bus back and then have their surgery once the scans have been sent over. Wow. Yeah, so in India, you would see people with these giant frames on their head who were just oh. transporting themselves oh. to a different hospital. Very good for social distancing, because it, it, from what you're gesturing here, it looks like you couldn't get that close to them. It's it's <laughs> a very, yeah, it's quite a big item. It's, yeah. It sounds like that thing on Saw, you know, that rips people's heads open. Like you put them in this contraption and if you don't get the key in time i'm the only one who's seen that movie okay never mind <laughs> it's not a reassuring thing to say to the person who's sitting next to on the bus james on the way to their brain surgery <laughs> um, i was reading actually a study about a particular brain surgery where the surgeons use stickers to label little bits of the brain so this was kind of just a, a throwaway comment in this study but they referred to it as intraoperative electrical stimulation mapping. And they're basically trying to work out which bits of their brain are responsible for which things. And so what they did was they would have a, you know, when patients are awake, but you're operating on their brain, the surgeons stimulated different parts of their brain and then looked at what the patient did to see which things it affected. So if they prodded one bit, the patient might lose language. If they prodded another mm. bit, the patient might start dribbling or something. And then they added a little label to each little bit saying language bit, <laughs> dribbling bit, oh walking bit, <laughs> playing the violin. So I'm just sort of, I didn't see a picture, but I'm imagining a brain covered in post-its. Oh, yeah, that's incredible. There was another world, world first of surgery, which happened last year. This was the world's first double penis removal. Ooh. Just just from one person? From from the same person. Okay. It was a, a baby boy who was born with three penises. Oh, wow. Not one, not two, wow. but three. Yeah. It's the first recorded ever case of human triphalia, uh, which uh, is correct. I was going to say treatise, but that's... <laughs> <laughs> That's Alexi's latest game he's working on. <laughs> Anyone for Trinus? Um, That's incredible. Yeah, and did no. they keep the middle one or the left one or the right one? Ooh, good call. They kept the they kept the functional one. Okay, uh, okay. Which, uh -huh. Yeah. Uh, the other two were more stubs than full on. You, they would have been able to get erections in the front. They were built. Could they urinate? Them, could you urinate out of them? I, I, I don't... I, you don't I, know I if the cords... Yeah, no, fair enough, fair enough. Do you think like you a would... sprinkler system, though, Dan. Are you think you could stand yeah. him in a garden when he's older? Well, <laughs> you could stand at all three urinals at the same time. <laughs> yeah. You could piss on three people's shoes at the same time. Would you? Um, do you think you would keep them if that happened to you? Would you ask to keep them? Because people do that for well, surgery, don't they? It's a vexed question, yeah. I don't know. Um, yeah. You wouldn't wear them as earrings or anything, but you might keep them in a drawer. <laughs> Put them on a yeah. mantelpiece or something. I would I know someone who kept her hip bone uh, after it was replaced. Yeah, yeah. I I was talking to um, someone we all know, Case Moliker, who's mm. the curator of the Natural History Museum in Rotterdam. Anytime he has surgery that is removed, a bit of his body is removed. So like um, gallstones or you know anything like that, he keeps it in a jar in his home, and he's shown me them. There's there's like. And and all the things to do with his kids when they were born, placentas and so on, they're all in formaldehyde I mean, sitting in his house. I know what you're saying, Dan, and I love Case, but he is a bit weird, so it's not... <laughs> <laughs> oh, he should turn it into a museum and call it Case's Cases. Oh, that's good. Strong. Lovely. Yeah. Tall. Um, Lovely. Yeah, it's weird the whole do you keep your 
limb stuff. I was reading a thing online from someone who used to work in a funeral home and said that they'd been asked to keep a leg in a freezer and it ended up being for over a decade because the person who'd had it amputated wanted to be buried with it in the end. Wow. Ah, that's nice. I think I think that's a bit cheeky. Right. Yeah. Well, it's using someone's freezer space, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> if, I, if I said to Andy, I've made some lasagna and I want to keep it, but I don't have enough room in my freezer, can I keep it in your freezer? I think I'd say is, yes. I know, but you would feel like you had to say yes. Wouldn't you? As the years went by, I would slowly grow more resentful <laughs> of the lasagna in the freezer. I think, oh, I've just I've got some leftovers, but I can't freeze them. I've got a James's bloody lasagna. <laughs> And you probably keep like occasionally bringing up lasagna just in case I remembered that, wouldn't you? I would. I would. Yeah. Uh, James, every conversation we had, I would bring up <laughs> lasagna in some way or freezing or leftovers. Yeah, but this lady um, can't but... go. Any plan on dying soon? That's the only question she can ask. <laughs> hey, no. <laughs> How's your but help? you come to a rental agreement in the end. I imagine that the, the rental agreement would be the best way really? forward. Really? Okay. When James okay. says to me, for 50p a year, you can keep. You're going to charge me to put my lasagnas in your freezer. After two years, Mate. James, which is my cutoff, and I think that's reasonable, <laughs> I would insist on some kind of arrangement. I can't believe I thought we were friends. <laughs> um, Anna, have you got a freezer? <laughs> I'm not getting involved in this. <laughs> 49p a year. <laughs> you get briefed on how to care for your limbs if you choose to keep them. Do you, you get told because you can be given them uh, in formaldehyde and water. For instance, is one way they get stored. And mm -hmm. apparently you get a little briefing booklet which says you need to change the formaldehyde and water every 10 years. Oh, okay. Oh. So just set an alarm okay. every 10 years. It's like changing a <laughs> fish tank, which I think is about the same from memory. That is a great alarm to go off mid-meeting, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> oh, damn, sorry. I just got to change the water and formaldehyde of my leg. <laughs> just lean over behind you and release one spigot. Starts draining. <laughs> Um, do you know that yeah. people didn't really like wearing surgical gloves when they first came in? Like any technology, I suppose, there's always mm -hmm. some resistance. Mm -hmm. uh, but there's quite a lot of um, hesitation with surgical gloves because people would kind of root around with their hands and they felt like if they wore gloves, then they wouldn't get the feeling and they wouldn't <laughs> be able to do the job quite as well. Um, but one of the reasons is because like some of the um, gloves that they use were not exactly good for purpose. So the first ones were like elbow length cotton or silk gloves and they would just like get covered with blood within about two seconds and you'd have to keep changing them and then there was one surgeon who put wax directly onto his hands and so kind of dunked his hand in some molten wax and then let it dry and then would use that Wow. And the idea, of course, was to try and um, make the operation sterile. But a lot of people thought that maybe that's a bit pointless. They thought it's impossible to make everything completely sterile. So we should just accept there'll be some contamination, but then try and kill the bacteria afterwards. Do you know what I mean? So there's like these two kind of sides of what they should do. Right. Mm, but now they use gloves. No, they Which did they go with? Yeah. Oh, they were. I think sterilization for operations, largely speaking, is orthodoxy now. <laughs> it's the preferred way um, although um, sometimes you don't have a choice um, there was a case in 1995 when a woman just was getting onto a plane and slipped uh, and she thought she was okay but then it turned out that she'd fractured her rib which had punctured her lung and the plane was already in the air and so they weren't going to be able to do an emergency landing because the change in pressure might kill her and so they had to do something about it. And there's these two doctors called Angus Wallace and Tom Wong. And the case was written up in the British Medical Journal, which honestly is such a good read. It's an incredible story. Uh, and they used a, um, they kind of got a urinary catheter, which was in the first aid kit, uh, but it wasn't good to be used for a chest. So they had to use a clothes hanger to stiffen it up. Um, they didn't have any sterilization stuff. So they used Covoisier cognac to make it sterile. <laughs> Uh, they didn't have any surgical clamps, so they held the incision open with a knife and fork. Sorry, uh, had, had wow. someone lost the first aid kit that's supposed to be on board the plane? Well, since then, um, since this happened, the medical kits on certainly British airlines, uh, and I think American as well, and probably throughout most of the world, have improved a lot, and they've got a lot more stuff yeah. now. So I, I read the story too, and I love that she had complained about it before the plane took off and she said that she'd had a slip and it was this this rib problem so the doctors actually saw her before the plane took off and they went okay no you should be fine 
And then when it got up to high altitude, it started really hurting. And then she came clean that she hadn't just slipped. She'd actually been knocked off her <laughs> motorbike and hit by a car um, wow. ju- uh, before, oh. just before getting on the plane. So it was a proper proper accident actually if it was 10 minutes this bit of surgery and then they put this um, catheter in and she spent the rest of the flight just watching the movie yeah (laughs) unfortunately it was stopping my mumble shriek (laughs) (laughs) she died of boredom (laughs) okay it is time for our final fact of the show and that is my fact my fact this week is that in 1990, five children in America were given the first name spelt A-B-C-D-E, or Absidy. All were born in Hawaii, where the local alphabet doesn't actually contain the letters B, C, or D. <laughs> wow. <laughs> this is amazing. A lot of things to unpick here. So, <laughs> so it's pronounced Absidy. There's, a, there's actually a couple of pronunciations, but that is one of them, yeah. And Sometimes it is... um, pronounced Ab City, which is what I'm going to call my gym. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so um, this was in an article that sort of erupted in 2018 when a girl who was trying to book herself, her mum was trying to get her and her daughter onto Southwest airplanes. Um, they took a picture and put it online going, look at the name of this girl. She's Her first name is A-B-C-D-E. And kind of shamed her and that turned into a national story. But then people were digging into it and finding out that this isn't as rare a name as one girl in America. It turned out that as of 2017, 373 girls um, were named ABCDE or Absidy. And further people have done sort of their little checks into how far back the name goes. And in 1990, five were registered as being given that name. And all five of them were located in Hawaii. And yeah, and it's been growing ever since as a name. And, and it, it doesn't really have an origin no, as far so as I weird. can tell. Well, I mean, mm. it does probably, but no one yeah. knows it. It must have started somewhere, mustn't it? Some alphabet teacher in primary school going, oh, I think that sounds like a nice name mm. and spread from there. But we'll never know unless someone out there does. Yeah. Um, and it's, yeah, so so the Hawaii, this is the modern Hawaiian alphabet that doesn't have it. Um, and I looked up our names. Um, James, there's no J in the Hawaiian modern alphabet as well. So your oh, name well. is different. So Anna, your name, if you were being translated into a Hawaiian name, is still Anna with one N, A-N-A. Uh, okay. James, you are Kimo, K-I-M-O. Strong. I am um, Kaniela, so K-A-N mm. instead of a D. And Andy, you are Analu. A N A L U. That's what you Analu. Yeah. Yeah. Analu. I like I like that pronunciation and I'm sure it's correct. I don't know what the pronunciation is. It's A N A L U. Yeah. It sounds like a product. <laughs> Are you bored That's of not- anasol? Then try Analu. <laughs> I thought it sounded like a bathroom cleaner. It's more like something to sit next to the cow urine, I think. <laughs> the sequel to Despicable Me. Ain't <laughs> <laughs> all you. Ain't all you. <laughs> um, so baby names. Oh, yeah. Mm. Baby names, um, we only know about baby names due to a guy called Michael Shackelford, who... <laughs> Before the... him, what? people just didn't give <laughs> babies names. They were like, what's this called? No idea. Just don't know. 1997. We so need Michael Shackelford so here. <laughs> He was a guy who he worked. He worked. So it's it's the sort of we only know that there are three hundred and seventy three absidies, for example, because of Michael Shackelford. He he worked at the Social Security Administration in Baltimore, and he and his wife were expecting a baby, and he just wanted to know if they were going to have a baby with a very common name because he was called Michael, which was a massively common name in America. Mm. And you know, wherever you go, people born in his generation, you know, someone shouts Michael, three people turn around, Um, and they didn't want that. So he thought he'd just program in a little computer program and work out the names. And he thinks he was the first person to see an accurate nationwide sampling of first names. Wow. And that was 1997. Good old Mike. A lot of people listening now think that I'm saying good. I read um, an amazing book called Fru Fru Frisbee and Brick, the book of unfortunate baby names by Russell Ash. Um, And it's got people such as Mabel Abel, Ruth Booth, Danny Fanny, Hugh Glue, and Nellie Smelly. 
Uh, these are all people um, who <laughs> nice. were around. Uh, there was someone in the 1830s in New York uh, called Preserved Fish. Mm. Um, his father was called Preserved Fish, and his grandfather was also called Preserved Fish. Wow. Um, but his yeah. father and grandfather were both blacksmiths, but he was actually a shipping merchant. He started off as a whaler and then started selling um, selling wow. fish, and he was called Preserved Fish. Amazing. <laughs> that's, that's pretty much the most... It's not a subtle nominative determinism, is it? <laughs> yeah. It's a bit too on the nose. <laughs> I like it. Yeah. Does it help the name when you add the third to the end of it? I don't know. Pres- preserved <laughs> Fish the Third. Yeah, just sort of like, why are you called the... Uh, okay, the third. I get it. you got weird-ass <laughs> grandparents and parents. Um, urethra Scoggins, Feel Your Leg, and Posthumous Mints. Just Feel Your others. Leg? Feel Your, P-H-E-L-I-A. Leg, right. posthumous mints. Posthumous mints. I, I want I, all my mints to be posthumous. Put <laughs> <laughs> out there now. Well, I've got some lasagna in my freezer. Anna, but you'd be very welcome to. Um, do you know terrible. when baby, baby sort of naming books, um, took off? Nineteen ninety-seven. <laughs> no one had books before then it's weird. well <laughs> there were i mean they sort of really did take off in the in the 80s um but actually they do date back way before that sort of names of interesting babies so but they used to be in the back of cookbooks because cookbooks used to have all kinds of extra gubbins in the later pages just to kind of pad out the recipes i guess so mrs uh, clark's cookery book in 1883 was subtitled including what to name the baby it was kind of general all-purpose household guide um so you got that kind of thing in the 19th century because you don't want to confuse a recipe with a baby name i don't know no, that's what, how actually preserved fish got his name and posthumous um, mints yeah <laughs> A um, couple of people who do have Hawaiian names uh, that we all know. So Keanu Reeves. Keanu is a Hawaiian name. Oh. And yeah, and it's a it's a lovely, unique name in Hollywood. And it means cool mountain breeze. But when he first started in Hollywood, his agent said, this name's not going to work. You need to go away and come back with another name because no one's going to hire you. It's too weird. Oh. So he agreed and he went away and he came back and he said, I've got my new name to his agents. And they said, OK, what is it? And he said, I want to now be known as Chuck Spadina. <laughs> Chuck Spadina. And so, his, yeah, his agent said, I'm not sure that Chuck Spadina is going to work. Go away. Come back with another one. So then Keanu Reeves went away, brainstormed, came back. And said, okay, I got my new one. I'll now be known as Templeton Page Taylor. And they said, <laughs> what? Mate, you're not getting this. And so they said, just keep Keanu. And that's the only reason he kept it. He was so ready to change it to either of those names. So do you so, think that he came up with these stupid names to stop the idea of him having to change it? It was like a clever thing? Or do you think he just is an idiot who doesn't know what a normal name is? <laughs> I, th- I think, yeah, I hadn't actually thought that. So <laughs> maybe, maybe that's exactly what he was doing. Yeah, not sure. It, it sort of read that story reads like you're reading Rumpelstiltskin backwards, doesn't it? <laughs> you know, when you go and try and guess at the name every day. Yeah. Um, in 1900, 91% of all children were given a name from the top 1,000 uh, most popular names. This is in America. Um, but by 2000, only 75% of girls were given a name from the top 1,000. Uh, and for boys, it was 86%. So a lot more children are being given um, unique names or very unusual names. Mm-hmm. And they've um, looked into this. It was a 1995 study, and they find it's very common in African-American families. And they looked at the whole country uh, over the whole of that century, and they found that in Illinois in 1920, 31% of African-American girls and 25% of African-American boys had unique names in the whole country. And the reason they think this, um, there's someone called Sandra L. West, who is the co-author of the Encyclopedia of the Harlem Renaissance, and a couple of scholars called Ayana F. Brown and Janice Took Lively. And what they think is basically the surnames that um, African-American families have are often things that were given during slavery times and they were forced upon them um, by white people. Whereas the first name is something that's given to you by a loved one, by a family member. And so people will give names that kind of show that they're loved by their family. Um, They can show that by giving them unique sort of special first names um, because they're stuck with these old fashioned surnames. That's yeah. interesting. Yeah. They, we are definitely getting more into our unusual names. There have been various studies about why we have, but I mean, it's largely obviously because we're a bunch of individualistic 
millennials, I suppose, and everyone <laughs> wants a special name for their kid. But there's also a really interesting study, which I thought sounded like rubbish. And then I saw it being written up in a serious and reliable way about how there's an exact correlation between how recently a US state joined the union and how many newborn babies get unusual names. And so there's the idea that if you're a frontier settler, so, you know, you're going and you're settling mm. a new land. You are more sort of bold. It's more bold society. It's more individualistic. Uh, it's more gung-ho, get out and make your own way. And it's much more likely that you'll be willing to break the mould and give your kid a weird name. So there's mm. literally an exact inverse correlation between common names and how recently a state was settled. Same with Canada on the east of Canada, which was settled first. Kids have much more common names. But the west of Canada, which was settled more recently, still has that hangover of, yeah, we're new here. We'll do what the fuck we want. And that's that correlates. Wow. Yeah. That's a very interesting that's idea. Um, not many Ivankas, it turns out, um, hmm. that people thought that perhaps there might be more Ivankas because she was a prominent um, political figure. Um, do you know why that might be? Not many Ivankas. Because mm, it's, oh, it sounds Russian-y, which might be a bit uh, off-putting yeah, to a lot of Americans? I think there's something about that. Basically, um, there is not much fashion at the moment for any name which contains the letters N and K next to each other. Um, this mm. is according to Laura Wattenberg, who wrote the Baby Name Wizard book and runs babynamewizard.com. <laughs> um, she said that basically NK is, um, is very much out of fashion. So Frank, for instance, very much out of fashion. Yeah. Frank, wow. Ivank, anything like that. Yet my son Wanker is uh, <laughs> fucking the trend. Um, you can get consultants, can't you? You can get professional advice on this if you like. There are various services which do it. There's one which I found in America, which is called, I love this, it's called Appalachian Mountain. Okay, nice, So it's Appalachian as in naming, yeah. but obviously there are the Appalachian yeah, Mountains. Thank you, Andy. Just in case not everyone knows the Appalachian Mountains, they're not in the top three mountain ranges, I would say. Um, I reckon I'm more familiar with the mountain range than the word to mean to give someone a name, actually. Great point. Really good point. Well, anyway, I've covered the ground, I think, pretty exhaustively now. And um, <laughs> you can pay for like the very basics is a 45 minute call as a kind of urgent assistance thing. If you're, I don't know, maybe if you're hanging around outside the baptism office, whatever. Or you can pay a lot more and get an eight page report. You know, if you need wow. a baby name to work in three different languages, let's say, because the parents are from different places, uh, then you can get that and it'll really drill down into the detail. You want to avoid particular syllables. That's what you go for interesting God. so they basically kind of go through you know like in um the simpsons when they name bart they try and work out if there's <laughs> anything that rhymes with it and they go cart dart er yeah. no we're fine does this yeah. do these people basically do <laughs> eight pages of possible <laughs> ways that your child could be bullied in every different country bullying nicknames basically yeah i think it's if you want to avoid particular um abbreviations of the name they can do that too interesting i yeah. think if you need professional consultation over what to name your child you've got to take a really long and hard look at your capacity <laughs> to make an independent decision okay well my parents wanted to call me anal you so i'm glad for one that they took that advice <laughs> Okay, that's it. That is all of our facts. Thank you so much for listening. If you would like to get in contact with any of us about the things that we have said over the course of this podcast, we can be found on our Twitter accounts. I'm on at Schreiberland. James. At James Harkin. Andy. At Andrew Hunter M. And Chazinski. You can email podcast at qi.com. Yep, or you can go to our group account, which is at no such thing, or our website, no such thing as a fish.com, where we have all of our previous episodes, as well as links to any upcoming live shows we might be doing and video links to anything that we've done that's on YouTube. Do check it out and come back again next week because we will be here with another episode and we'll see you then. Goodbye. Goodbye.